How's everybody? Okay, so Revelation chapter 10. <clears throat> and we, we saw last Sunday, after the sixth trumpet was blown, how a voice came from the altar, from the altar in heaven, commanding the release of these four angels who were, who were bound at the river Euphrates. Now, their purpose was to kill, <coughs> excuse me, one-third of the earth's population. And with them came this vast demonic army. And John numbered them to be 200 million. Yet, despite the destruction that came from, from these angels, from these demons, um, Mankind, we could see it right at the end of chapter 9. Mankind refused to repent. They, they continued in their idolatry. Um, they continued in their sin, despite God's judgment. And we know from previous texts that they knew that this was judgment from God. So we'll say they had no excuse, did they? They can't put their hands up and say, we did not know, because God has made it clear to them. Now in, check in, now in, in chapter 10, we come to the, the second parenthetical pa uh, passage in this book. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's seven in total. And what that is, and more or less, the pause button is being pressed. The pause button has been pressed. Um, before the seventh trumpet is blown. And what happens here is that we are given additional information about what's going to take place between the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgments. So this more or less, this, this information, it adds to the prophetic scene that we're given here. You know, just as, as chapter seven brought an in, uh, a interlude between the sixth and seventh sealed judgments. The sealed judgments, if you remember, were the previous set. So here in chapters 10 to 11, right up to verse 14, comes this pause before the seventh trumpet is blown. So this is the second interlude. And, and in it, God assures John, and he assures us here today, that he is in total control. But not only that, that he has not forsaken his people. Remember, there are still believers on the earth at this time. And in this chapter, John will describe for us that this mighty angel with a book in his hand. And he has one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. And this angel calls out in a loud voice and and then he introduces these seven thunders. But just as John was to write down what these seven thunders said, he's told not to. He's told to seal that message up. Um, instead, John is instructed to take the scroll. He's told to eat it and then proclaim it to, to every tribe, nation, and tongue. So it, it's, it's interesting stuff. So let's read about this angel. 
Um, we're introduced to him in verses 1 and 2. So John says, Then I saw. So when you see this in Revelation, this is a new vision that John is receiving. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left, left foot on the land. Now, we're not sure as to the identity of this angel. Some people believe that it's Jesus, pointing to the similarities in the imagery between the angel and that of Christ. In, in particular, what, what Jesus said at, at the opening of this book, back in chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus describes how he is coming with the clouds. Now, I'm not convinced that it's Jesus. Personally, I just think it's just it's another angel. Because notice how John actually says that. He says, this word, he said, it's another angel. And this word, another, comes from the Greek word, alon. And it means another of the same kind. So this angel is similar to the other angels. Now, this is probably a reference to those angels who have already blown uh, the trumpets, those six trumpets that have already been blown, none of which, as we know from our study, none of which was Jesus. Notice, too, how John describes the angel, um, how he, he describes his stance, which is very interesting in verse 2. So he has one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. Now, nowhere in Scripture do we see Jesus placing his foot upon the earth except at his second coming. And the prophet Zechariah, he described that day in, in, in Zechariah chapter 14. And it says, and I'll read it, On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. So here we see this mighty angel stepping upon the earth prior to Christ's return. Another reason why I believe that this angel is in Christ. Now, could I be wrong? Could this angel be Jesus? Absolutely. Might I change my mind in the future? Maybe the next time I stu study Revelation? Maybe, maybe not. Now, before we move on, look how John describes the angel as being wrapped in a cloud. Verse 1. Now, this may, and it, in Scripture we see how it often symbolizes judgment. In the New Testament, clouds are frequently connected with just that, with God's judgment upon the earth. For example, Jesus described on a number of occasions how he will return in the clouds. And when he returns, he will bring judgment. In addition to the clouds, this angel has, has a rainbow 
over its head. Which, if you remember back uh, to the very beginning of the Bible, it is a reminder, a promise of God's covenant not to destroy the earth again through flood. So even though the seventh trumpet will be awful, there will still be mercy. John also describes how the angel's face was, was like the sun. Now, this is imagery that may point to how this angel reflects the glory of God. In chapter 1, verse 16, John describes Christ's face as, a, as like the sun shining in full strength. And finally, this angel is described as having legs like pillars of fire. And again, fire symbolizes judgment, which, which in effect, it reveals this angel's mission. And that is to announce God's judgment upon an unbelieving world, a Christ-rejecting world. And then in verse 2, we see how the angel had a little scroll open in his hand. Now, if you're reading from the New King James, it describes it as a little book, a little book open in his hand. Now, again, th there's much debate as to the identity of this little scroll. Is it the same scroll that only Jesus could open? You can see that back in chapter 5 that the seven seal scroll that was unrolled, un unrolled to bring about the seventh seal judgment. I think it is. Um, and remember that John witnessed the breaking of each seal on that scroll. So the scroll then would have been fully opened. Now, because John describes the scroll as little, some argue that this is a, a different, a completely different scroll. But if you look at verse 8 in this morning's text in chapter 10, John is told to take the scroll. It's not the little scroll from the angel's hand. Therefore, it seems that this term scroll and little scroll are being used interchangeably. So you can use, you can use both. And with regards to the scroll looking small, I think it looks small because the angel is really big. You know, so you have this scroll in the hands of this massive, mighty angel. And it is an angel that is acting as Christ's messenger, as his representative. And then we have the angel's stance. And it's very authoritative, isn't it? which you'll agree points to God's authority, an authority that is grounded in his sovereignty. God's in control. Now, unfortunately, I wish it wasn't the truth, but none of us can avoid, none of us can insulate ourselves from the problems that come from living in this world. So, all the more reason why I need to understand this truth. God is the one who will have the final say. And that's where you and I need to put our confidence, isn't it? You know, we are going to str struggle. 
And if we struggle and start to question everything, why this, why that, why does God allow this to happen? Then our faith, it will suffer. And time and time again in scripture, we see God's word speaking of just that, God's sovereignty, how how he is in charge. God declared through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 10. He said, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The, the apostle Paul wrote of God in Ephesians. He said that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. When you and I take these truths into our hearts, in faith, trusting in God's wisdom and his goodness, and not trusting in our own understanding, then and then will we be able, only then will we be able to stand against what this life throws against us. We will be able to rest in him no matter what comes our way. And that's the message that God is communicating to John in this chapter. So who is this message for? Firstly, it's for John. And we'll see how he's meant to digest, to eat this work, to digest it. But it doesn't stop there. Because if you look at the very last verse in this chapter, it said that this message is for many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So it's a message for everybody, a message that declares God's sovereign authority to judge this entire earth. And not only that, he also has the authority to take back this earth from its present ruler, which we know is Satan. And in keeping with the angel's description now in verse 3, we see how the angel called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now, a long time ago, I was, um, I I went to London Zoo and I was was just gobsmacked at how big lions were. Um, Up until this point, I only saw them on TV. And anyone seen a, a lion for real? Yeah, they're huge. It's like, it's like a cow. And, you know, and I was shocked, and I was even further blown away when, I think my luck was in, one of the lions actually roared. You know, it was just so loud, so intimidating. And this angel's roar reflects the, the power of God, his authority. And all the inhabitants of the earth will hear this roar. They will hear it. But we also see an interesting reaction here to to this mighty angel's roar, to his cry. We see it in the second part of verse three. The seven thunders sounded. And if you're reading from the New King James, it describes how the seven thunders uttered their voices. So this is speech. 
And obviously seven is the number of, of completeness or perfection in the Bible. So verse four. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. <clears throat> so, John hears the voices of the seven thunders. He grabs his, his pen or his quill and he's just about to write it down and he's told not to. He's told not to record it. Now we know from other parts of scripture how, how thunder can be a mark of God's judgment. In, in 1 Samuel, we, we see a section of Hannah's prayer in, in which she cries out. She said, the, uh, 1 Samuel 2.10, she said, The adversities of the Lord shall be, the, shall be broken to pieces. Against them I will thunder in heaven. And also what is called the last words of David. David, he, he uses similar language, language here in giving thanks and praise to God for, for protecting him uh, from his enemies. And that's why some people believe that uh, David wrote this in, in, in towards the end of his life. And this is in 2 Samuel 22. David said, the Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. So we have this connection between thunder and God's voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them lightning and routed them but notice in this morning's text how the thunder was separate from the angel's voice which may point which i believe points to to the thunder being the voice of god and we see in the psalms how thunder also represents just that not only judgment but the vo voice of god psalm eighteen thirteen. It says, the Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice. You know, further evidence of the seven thunders being the voice of God can be found in, in Revelation 4, 5, which we covered a while back. And it says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And we know, again, going back to chapter 1, that, that these seven spirits of God describe the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit, which we see mention of in Isaiah chapter 11. So we have one spirit with seven characteristics descriptions that speak of the Holy Spirit's perfection and completion. So these seven thunders, these seven voices, could be God pronouncing further judgment upon the earth, which, which, which fits within the context of, of today's chapter. Now, the reason for, for the sealing, the reason why God told John not to write this down. What is it? Well, some commentators believe it's because the coming judgments were, were too terrifying to record. That's what some people believe. But look, at the end of the day, we just don't know. John brought this to the grave. 
But why would God even mention these seven thunders if he's not going to allow John to record them and for us to know? You know, there's so many theories on this, but, but for me it points to the fact that there are things in this book, in the book of Revelation, that we just don't know. And we better get used to not knowing everything about God. How could we? In Deuteronomy 29, 29, the, the Lord spoke to Moses. And he said, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So we have God's secrets, God's revelation, which is being revealed to mankind and is set down in writing and passed down through the generations, which is, which is this, is the word of God. God does not tell us everything. And let's face it, it would be absolutely impossible for a finite mind like ours to fully understand an infinite God. We don't have the capacity for it. But what you've got to ask yourself is not knowing what these seven thunders, if these seven voices, does that cause an obstacle to your walk with the Lord? Of course it doesn't. If God wanted us to know, then he would have told us. Yeah, and I find this really interesting. There are books written on this subject, on these seven thunders, these seven voices. Books. And I looked at one book and the author said, um, the author claimed to have been given a special revelation regarding what these voices said to John. This writes, remind myself, do not swear, you're preaching. It's, it's ridiculous. Absolute, a special revelation. Anyone here know what the seven voices said? There you go. We just don't know. Only John knew. So why speculate about something that we will never find out? Interesting the, interestingly, these are the only words, in fact, in the book of Revelation that are sealed. The only words. So it's a very, very small percentage of this book that's been sealed that we're not going to know. Now John begins to write again in verses 5 to 6. And notice here in verse 5 how his attention now turns back to the angel. And he says, Whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land. So then he raises his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and earth and what's in it, and the sea and what is in it. And there would be no more, that there would be no more delay. <coughs> so the angel is standing there. He, rises, he, <coughs> he raises his hand and he swears by him who is eternal. And then he also speaks of, of God's sovereign power over all creation. And this is another reason why I believe that this angel is not Jesus. The fact that he swears by God, implying that God is greater than the angel. But I'll add to that, there, there's, some, there's certainly some good arguments to, uh, to against my conclusion. There really is. 
Um, notice as well how the angel's praise echoes that of the 24 elders that we saw back in, back in chapter 4. And these elders, remember, they, they worship God and they cry out, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So this mighty angel of chapter 10 swears an oath that what? That there will be no more delays. And, and you know, what delay is he talking about here? A delay in finishing the mystery of God, which is what he says in the next, chap next verse, verse 7. <clears throat> but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the... <clears throat> by the seventh angel. Put your phones on silent. Uh, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, that mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So John points out that this mystery is something that has not been previously revealed, but has now been made known. And the mystery that's spoken of here has already been spoken of. It's already been mentioned to the prophets. What did God declare to the prophets? That one day he was going to establish his kingdom here on earth or as Paul describes it in his letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 1, verse 10, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. But I think the next chapter describes this, this even better. Uh, chapter 11, verse 15, if you, want to, if you want to look at that. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So clearly the mystery that's spoken of here is, is the final step to complete God's plan for this world, which ends in, in the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, and the establishment of his millennial kingdom here on earth. So the angel declares the time has come. There was no more delay. He swore on this. There would be no more turning back. God's long suffering, his patience has ended. And this was going to be the final judgment to be poured out upon the earth. So verses 8 and 9. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again. So this is the same voice that he heard telling him not to record the words of the, the seven thunders. Verse 9, 8 and 9. So he said, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And then John did it, didn't he? He describes, I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And then the angel says to him, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, 
but in your mouth it will taste, uh, sorry, it will be sweet as honey. So this is interesting, isn't it? What's, what's, this, what's this all about? Why is John commanded to take the little scroll from the angel and eat it? Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ezekiel, you'll recognize this imagery straight away. Now, God commissioned Ezekiel to prophesy against the, the rebellious nation of Israel. God told Israel, told Ezekiel to look, whether they want to listen to it or not, speak my words to my people. And he said to them in Ezekiel chapter 3, he said, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. And then Ezekiel describes how he did just that. And he said to me, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give to you and fill your stomach with it. And then Ezekiel describes, he says, then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. But Ezekiel then goes on to describe how this same scroll uh, became bitterness in his stomach, which matches John's experience here in chapter 10. It says, and I took the scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Now, you probably guessed it. The scroll is God's word, isn't it? And it's a declaration to, about the judgments that are going to be poured out upon the earth, referring to the seventh judgment. Now, the act of taking and eating the scroll symbolizes cons us consuming God's word. God wanted his word to be part of John just as he wants our, his word to be part of us. But for what purpose? Look at verse 11 again. You must again prophesy about, about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So John was to prophesy. He was to declare God's message to everybody. And as we know, the word of God is sweet. And that's exactly what David wrote in the Psalms. He said, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey on my mouth, Psalm 119. But it doesn't stop there. Because with the sweetness of God's word also comes bitterness in that it brings judgment. And if you look at John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So those who believe in Jesus are promised eternal life. That's sweet, isn't it? That's really, really good news. But those who don't believe Jesus says here, remember he's speaking to Nicodemus here, they will perish, and, and there's the bitterness. You know, we may not like it, 
judgment is part of God's message. And it is the very message that you and I are called to share. So just like Ezekiel and the Apostle John, we as believers are to consume God's word. We're to read it, study, meditate, pray over it, and live it out. What have we all been called to do? What is the Great Commission? Tell people about Jesus. And any time, I remember when I, as a young believer, I, I'd, I'd hear outreach by the pastor, and I'd just keep my head down, remind myself what my dad always said, never volunteer for anything. And why was that? Fear. What happens if they ask me this? What happens if they ask me that? It was fear. So we need to equip ourselves. As Paul says, equip in and out of season. What does that mean? When you feel like it and when you don't. Read God's word, consume it, eat it, study it. And then share, share that good news with anyone, anyone who will listen. Amen.